Today's podcast subject matter reads a little bit like a sinister public service broadcast from the 70s or 80s. There's a killer that causes more deaths globally of children and young adults between the ages of 5 and 29 than anything else. In fact, 3,700 people a day, that's one every 24 seconds, die in a road traffic collision. Perhaps more shocking is that these deaths are preventable. We know how to prevent impacts that kill, but we're still failing to put into action preventative measures that could save 1.35 million lives around the world every year. Today, we're going to find out what it will take to bring that rate down. United Nations is entering its second decade of action on road safety now, which rather suggests the first one didn't solve the problem, and the plan is to halve road deaths by 2030. And with the sixth United Nations Global Road Safety Week on May the 16th to the 23rd, now seems like a very good time to be discussing these subjects. The first road death was in 1870, 1880 or something. If you add up all the deaths on the roads, It's more than 50 million since the creation of the car. Welcome to the Global Safety Podcast, brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation. But it'll be far from all bad news today. We're going to take a journey around the world and see what critical lessons we can learn from countries and cities who are managing to reduce their road accident rates. Well, among our panellists today is a cycling gold medalist, Chris Boardman, man who believes the humble bicycle can be used to solve some of the world's biggest problems, particularly when it comes to the saving of human life. So, Chris, I'm curious, tell us, do you remember your, your first bicycle and the first rides you had? Well, I certainly do. I think it was a, a blue rally chipper with fat white tyres. And, and like probably most people on this call, the bicycle was my first uh, form of freedom, a way to expand territory around my local areas. Uh, and that's a memory that I've had, and sadly my kids haven't, because the environment had changed so much in that 20, 30 years that um, they didn't have a space that was safe enough to do that. And that's pretty much, in a nutshell, why I ended up in this line of work. Well, that's fascinating, and that whole area of, of sort of liberty and, and freedom to travel is something that you'll definitely come on to later. But I want to introduce the, the rest of my panel We have Natalie Drazen, who is North America Director and UN Representative for the FIA Foundation, a charity which aims to ensure safe, clean and fair green mobility for all. Juliette Edu, Ghana Country Manager for AMEND, an NGO which aims to reduce the incidence of road traffic injury across Africa. Oscar Edmundo Diaz, Urban Transport and Planning and E-Mobility and Road Safety Consultant and former Special Advisor to the Mayor of Bogota. And James Pomeroy, Group Health and Safety and Environment and Security Director at Lloyd's Register. Well, let's talk about, start anyway, with the the tough side of this, the impact of those collisions. And I'm talking about the impact on people. Natalie, am I right in thinking you come to this with a little bit of personal experience? You are. uh, When I was a college student, a friend of mine was hit and killed just crossing the road at 3.30 in the afternoon by a driver who had 17 prior charges of driving under the influence. Crossing the street is a human right. She was a promising young woman just trying to get to her classes for the day. And so this took me to a place of anger because not just sadness, but truly anger that that Miriam, Miriam was her name, 
um, was not just a statistic. She was representative of the fact that these sorts of crashes are the leading killer of kids 1 to 25 in our country. And as you mentioned, 5 to 29 around the world. Um, I learned a really important public health lesson because of her her tragedy. And uh, that was that, you know, I, I went to my professor that day and I said, let's make sure that this never happens to anyone ever again. Let's build a pedestrian bridge from campus to the dorms so nobody has to cross the street. And my professor said, well, pedestrian bridges are really ugly, so the Homeowners Association doesn't like them. And so with that professor's help, I uh, led a coalition to change the streets around campus and to get some legislation to fight uh, drunk driving in Maryland. And, and that is how I came to this. Now, it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that uh, for every individual that sadly dies, a much greater number are seriously injured, which has its own impacts as well. O- Oscar, in, in, what are your feeling about the wider impacts of these uh, tragedies? The impact is huge, and, and there are several cases in which if one, uh, one family member is injured, someone has to take care of that family member. And normally, the person that takes care is the same one that brings income to the household. So this problem grows and grows, and then what you have is families with no income, then what you have is, and, and with, with cities that we are talking about, that probably two or three people die daily in crashes. So the damage that those injuries do it is huge. Is there ever been a sort of measurable impact on the nation's economy from these kind of things? Is that ever measurable? I know that in Greater Manchester, um, KSIs cost £800 million a year. That's killed and seriously injured, yep. Of our, of our road collisions, it costs us that every year, and that's just the basic costs. Uh, and as you just heard, the, the pervasive and insidious effect is um, it makes headlines and it means it doesn't look and feel safe, and that's how people make their travel choices. So the, the, the economic impact is much bigger than that headline of 800 million, and that's just of one city region every single year. Chris is absolutely right, and... We know that road traffic crashes cost countries about an average of 3% of their GDP. But we also have to think about what's harder to measure, right? The kids who can't go to school because they're scared or they're injured and the years of productivity and life loss that come after that. So for example, I was traveling in rural Senegal and I saw spray painted on the side of the school something that said, I go to school, but I'm so scared of road crashes. And those are the kids that are going to school. But I think about the kid that I spoke to in Jamaica who told me that he doesn't even go to school sometimes because he is so scared of being hit because he's had so many friends die on their way to school or be injured. And and we have to think about the economic gain that could be had as well if our roads were safe. Now, you asked about the impact of serious injuries on families. You know, in, in Latin America, here's an example. The school journey is the most important one that a child takes, right? But every day, 50 kids in the region don't survive that trip. And here's an example. Nancy in Latin America is a single mother of two, and her 17-year-old, Laura Gabriela, was hit by a bus while she was walking to school. She was actually dragged under the rear tires as the bus ran over her two times. And to care for her daughter, Nancy had to quit her job. Uh, She was informally employed, so there was no leave or layoff compensation. 
And the household was relying on the salary of her son, her teenage son, to help uh, the family survive and a couple other family members. So for mem- for many families, this is reality. When they can just start to see the ledge out of poverty, they get dragged right back down again by a tragedy like this. Thank you. Uh, James, I wanted to come to you. We're going to be moving on to causes in a minute, but I wanted to see if you had any reflections on what you've heard. And also, uh, share with us a, a, a share with a, a, a stat that you passed on this morning about the uh, what was happening in America with uh, with COVID and, and road accident stats, which seemed fairly extraordinary. Yeah, I, th- I think Tom, when we kind of think about this, um, it's important to take that socio-economic perspective. But there is a pure commercial element to this. Um, so for for many businesses, actually, this road safety is by far their biggest risk. Um, actually the biggest issue that many high-risk organizations face is road safety but it's also in many respects their biggest corporate social responsibility issue but they may not necessarily recognize it and it's also a highly topical issue not just from a sustainability perspective but also as we think about COVID so we've all undergone 14 months of lockdown now that's really shown the system-based approach and how we need to think about road safety as a system so road safety, uh, uh, the killed and statistic, killed and uh, seriously injured figures across Europe generally are down. But actually, when we look at the US, the numbers are up quite significantly. About 3,000 more people over the past year have tragically been killed on US uh, highways. So the figures are up by about 8%. Despite traffic being down? Yeah, the traffic's been down by 13%. So we, what we need to do is we need to understand that there's a behavioural element to this, which is that you know ro- roads, when they're not congested with traffic, actually have a counterintuitive effect that they cause people to drive faster. But then we also need to understand when we give out messages, rightly so, about not using public transportation, that that can have counter effects. And we've seen those effects before. We saw them after 9-11. Yeah, Chris, you wanted to come in? Yeah, it was just one point because I, I often get when working with politicians that, that um, road safety is actually okay. Um, what that wraps up, and I'm sure James is well aware, uh, but I think it's worthy making the point that it depends how you're travelling. <laughs> Who are those casualties? So cars have got safer and safer, so you're uh, for the occupants but not for the people outside the car. And making that distinction is critical because walking and cycling, particularly in the UK, is getting a lot less safe. But the overall statistic, if you look at a single number, makes it look okay. Right, let's move on to the causes. Um, we're going to hear from uh, everybody on this, but I want to start off with uh, with Juliet, if I may. Juliet Adder, you work in, in several African countries on improving road safety. What are the issues? What are the big dangers? Big dangers, roadways that are not very forgiven. You have a road that is supposed to have, say, a walkway, but you, you, you're likely not to find continuity of walkways here or even a good network of it. So you find pedestrians having to walk on the road with um, the vehicles, and so there is that risk to them. You would have um, cycles, uh, cycle lanes, but they, they're short, and you don't really have a network of them. So... Even though you have you have a lot of pedestrians and cyclists in the African region, um, you don't have the facilities that would keep them safe on those roads. A lot of the roads are sort of made for the vehicles, moving vehicles from point A to point B, not really the people who are most most of whom are walking. 
Oscar, is it similar in in Latin America? I think uh, Juliet is absolutely right. It, it it starts with infrastructure. We need infrastructure that is safe for everyone, and we have a principle, which is, if you are going to build a bicycle path, the bicycle path has to be good for a for an eight year old to ride on it. So if it is not safe for an eight year old, it's not safe for anybody. So. That you have to build infrastructure with that mentality. You have to build the sidewalks with the mentality that the sidewalks are wide enough to have two wheelchairs going along at the same time, which is not what you find in many places. So I'm absolutely um, in, in agreement with what Juliet said about that. And, and something that I wanted to mention before is that I'm very concerned about what's happening, what James was talking about, public transport declining because what is happening in Latin America, talking about those issues in Latin America, is that more people are getting motorcycles. And that's, in the case of Bogota, that's one of the agents that have more fatalities producing and the victims as well. So this is something that is very concerning about our future with more people riding motorcycles and less public transport. A, a good public transportation system must be built in order to attract other people, and that makes cities safer. So you're saying certainly as COVID hopefully declines and, and vaccination spreads, that, that things like being on a motorcycle or, or walking in front of a motorcycle is, is more dangerous to your health or more, or more risky than, uh, than catching the virus. Absolutely. And, and, and the problem is that this, this idea that uh, public transportation is unsafe in terms of COVID transmission it's harming cities because there is something that is very difficult, which is that once a person moves from public transport to a motorcycle or a second-hand car, it's almost impossible to get them back. You lose them for good. So it's, it's the damage that that is causing for the future of our cities is very concerning. A really interesting point. Um, Chris Boardman, let, let's hear what the situation is in... in uh, countries like the UK and cities like Manchester in particular. To be able to cut through, to be able to connect with people's emotions, one of the statements I put in the first uh, document that we did was, it shouldn't take bravery to cross a street. And it just makes people stop and think and realise that it does. And that drives your decisions, it, de- it decides how you cho- what you do when you take the first step out of the house. Natalie, you've got a particular uh, focus on children's safety. Uh, what is it that What are the challenges that children face specifically? I see the danger kids face every day when I go out with my toddler. He's almost two and he goes wherever he wants to go. The other day, he stood next to an SUV and he barely came up to the top of the wheel well. You could fit him and 61 other kids behind an SUV and the driver wouldn't see a single one of them. And this is emblematic of our American love affair with our cars. It's time for a breakup because this is killing our children. We have an overly motorized society and high speeds, and that's why we're suffering from an epidemic on wheels. And the cure is speed reduction. When we make it safe for our kids to walk and cycle, we make it safe for everybody. Now, When we talk about speed reduction, we know that whenever we reduce speeds, we also reduce the likelihood that that everyone, and particularly our children, will die from 
excessive speed. And this is why we focus on school areas, right? Children are where we need to start. I just wanted to give James a chance to come in here because you've looked at some of this data around the world. You've looked at organisations and, and, and how they respond to this. Um, what, what do you think are, are, are the big causes here? If we set aside the, the, the responsibility of municipalities and governments to set up a good road infrastructure and regulation, the, the role of the organisation is critical. Um, we all know that the, the influence of distraction when we're driving, so having very clear policies around distraction, uh, distraction devices, plus also thinking about fatigue. Um, we all know when we're tired when we're driving, and a lot of that is about how we're planning and scheduling. So the organisational role here is to rethink what they're, how they manage risk, and then how they think about their social responsibility, how they schedule people, what are their rules for people that drive, what training they provide for them, and then how they think about how they apply rules around seatbelts and uh, speed. So the corporation has a key role here. And, and to give you some kind of number, for high-risk organisations involved in oil and gas and nuclear, you would naturally think their biggest risk relates to their processes. But somewhere about a quarter of all major incidents that these organisations face are road safety with their employees. So that really kind of brings it home. If you're coming off a two-week hitch off an oil rig, and then you have a major accident on returning home and you impact pedestrians or vulnerable vehicle users, that really kind of impacts it. Um, so I think the corporations have a huge role to play here. Some are doing some great work and we need more to do to get involved. According to World Health Organization, I gather that 93% of the world's fatalities on the roads occur in low and middle income countries. But these these countries only have uh, half the world's vehicles, so their their death and serious injury to vehicle ratio is far above that as it is in richer countries. Why? I think there are several um, reasons for that. I mean, uh, one is definitely there is no legislation and there is no no legislation, no regulation for speeds, and there is no enforcement. So that's why those numbers increase. But also, we have many people walking and in Bogota for example the highest number of deaths come from pedestrians and this is something that happens and and you gotta keep in mind that in in low and middle income countries many people have to walk long distances either to reach their destination or to reach the public transport system so that put them put them at risk if you don't have a safe infrastructure for pedestrians Many of these countries don't have sidewalks, not even, uh, not even 50 centimetre sidewalks. But I'm guessing no one on this call would say the solution to that problem is less walking. Well, let's move on to the, the, the solutions side of this and, and look at what's being done around the world to try and reduce these figures and, as far as possible, eliminate those, those terrible tragedies. Uh, Juliet, may I start with you? Um, what is being done? What are you kind of proud of or what have you seen around Africa that, that gives you some hope? We focus a lot on children and their journeys to and from schools. And so we have this um, program that we do, which is like a school area assessment. It's a road safety assessment and improvement project. And we go, we typically would go in, look at the school area, What's, what's the existing situation regarding road safety? How safe are the kids um, when they're walking along, when they're crossing? What are the speeds of vehicles around these schools? And then we'll take the information we find 
and determine what infrastructure. And these are really simple, basic infrastructure like speed humps. You would mark out a crossing point, you know, so that the children know where they should cross. You put in signs to let the drivers know that this is where children are crossing, so you need to behave differently. You would try and reduce the speeds of the vehicles in that area with um, speed calming measures. So you probably put in speed humps, rumble strips, anything that would slow down the vehicles, you know. And these, these, these measures have been found to actually work and save the lives of the children. Just talk to school authorities, um, the, the children themselves, the teachers, the head teachers, and you'll find that more often than not, within a, it's a matter of 12 months, you typically have three to five children actually being seriously injured due, as a result of a road crash. And sometimes you even find at least one child has died within that 12 month period, you know? So we, we pay a lot of attention to what's happening around schools and we also educate the children. We give them both theory and then practical um, lessons that would teach them how to get around when they're walking, when they're crossing the road, what they should and shouldn't do to keep themselves safe. So it's a matter of, yes, they take responsibility for themselves, but they're also aware that someone behind the steering wheel may not notice them or give them the priority that they really should. And what kind of reaction have you had to these measures, uh, particularly the ones that, that are infrastructure that may require drivers to change their behaviour? It's, it's been really well accepted by, well, in the countries that we've done it, and we work with the local authorities, the local road authorities, the municipal councils, and they're, they, they, they're happy with what we do. But then beyond, beyond what we're able to do physically, we also make contributions to designs that are done on major roads. And in the last few years, we've had the opportunity to influence some of the road designs that have been done and are being funded by the World Bank. In one case, we actually picked, you'll find a typical example where they've done a road design, beautifully approved, but then where you find a school you, you barely find anything to keep the children safe in those areas. So we take those designs, we actually took those designs and we took a closer look at what's happening around the school. What can we do? And we put in these simple infrastructure measures, you know, and we, we typically would do a pre-assessment of the road safety situation, the speeds and all of that. And then we'll go back after the, the infrastructure has been implemented, do a similar study, uh, study and then do a comparison. And almost every single time we have a reduction in the speeds of vehicles. And so by, by extension, children's lives are saved. They don't have to get injured seriously or they don't even have to die. Oscar, tell me about the work you did, what you did and how it was received. Our goal was to reduce fatalities by 15%. And when we left the mayor's office, it was 20% less. That's, so it works. It works to set those those goals ahead. So we did several things. We recovered spaces that were illegally taken by cars. Like this sounds very minor, but there were just places that were taken as parking lots, and where kids used to walk, and they cannot walk because there are cars coming in and out. So we recovered about seventeen thousand square meters, and and I love this ones. It's biking to school. So there are like biking uh, buses going to school from their homes. 
with their teachers, one in front, one behind, and they involved also their parents. They sent a message. While they are moving the kids, they send a message that is important to have the kids moving safely to school. And we did that as well by walking. So the same thing, the same concept, but for the uh, small kids, and they walk to school. And that reduced also the incidents around the schools. And the other things that we did is reducing the speeds. So we classified, like for example, for schools, 30 kilometer maximum. For commercial areas, 40 kilometers maximum speed. And for highways uh, in Bogota, uh, it's 50 kilometers uh, the most. The interesting thing is that we did this in 10 corridors, in, in 10 highways. We did that, we reduced the speed, why so important and why did we choose that? Because in these 10 corridors, there were happening between 35% to 40% of the fatalities of the entire city. So we had to tackle that right away. So we reduced the speed in, this, in these areas. Were all these actions popular? Of course not. The, the mentality of the people is like, I need to get to work or I need to get to school. Or I need to get fast. And there is this concept that this, these speed reductions are going to get you there uh, late. They don't think that they, maybe they have to wake up earlier. But the beautiful thing about that is that it is not about the speed. And this is the most difficult concept to communicate. It's not about the speed. It's about the flow of the traffic. Because many times they speed from one light to be stuck in the next traffic light. So, and, and it doesn't make any sense. And, and we measure that. We measure the, the, the travel time and they increase like one minute at the most. In some other careers, they didn't even increase the time. So it's, it's, that's, that's something very difficult to communicate. But isn't there another problem here, which I think is maybe a political problem with this across the world, is that only a very few people, too many, but only a very few people directly experience... Uh, accidents and, and 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 the impact of those, whereas everyone experiences what they might consider to be impositions on their their freedom to drive or their restrictions on where they can park and all these kind of things. And so that that that's a tricky problem, isn't it, when it comes to making these things popular? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I'm going to give you another example of a beautiful program that we had as well. We had bus drivers riding bicycles next to buses and we had cyclists behind the wheel of a bus the bus drivers freaked out when they were biking next to a bus and they that was the only way to teach them how 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 scary it is to be next to to a, a huge bus so they understood what was happening but the other part that was as important is to have the cyclists behind the wheel because the cyclists realized that they are blind spots. And this is, this is something that uh, I'm a cyclist as well. Uh, and and I, 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 before we did this program, I didn't even think about that. I just thought that I was like, that, that I had a, like, a, I don't know, a protection that will take me uh, safe uh, because everybody saw me. With this program, Cyclists realize that they, there are points where they cannot be seen. So we put the stickers in the buses 
showing cyclists to move if they are standing or they are staying too long by a blinding spot. And if you do that with drivers, with car drivers, that helps a lot too. Chris, uh, let, let's talk about what's happening in, in Manchester, what you've been doing to try and make it safer and, and about the, the B network. For walking, one of the standards that we've introduced is uh, it must be usable and want to be used by a parent with a double buggy. They're things that local people on a macro level could understand and things that they value and give them a reason to change for things that they care about. And I think changing that language has been really important to bring everybody together and get them behind a single mission to roll out that connected network for the entire city region. Uh, and as in the last 24 hours, Andy Burnham, the re-elected mayor of Greater Manchester, is announcing now we're going to suck um, buses and trams and trains into that same mission to make it really connect. Uh, and it really is gathering pace, but it's done that by talking to people about things that they care about. What about the specific thing like 20 mile an hour limits? I was I was uh, tr driving in Scotland uh, just last week and I noticed just about every centre of every settlement up there now has a, a 20 mile an hour limit. Um, uh, presumably that's something you'd, you'd support. Absolutely. You know, you reduce speed, you reduce accidents, you, you, you improve safety. But we do know that stick a sign up and it's not having much of an effect. What we're missing is consequences. Consequences for driving are absolutely critical. While you can have 12 points and claim exceptional hardship and still continue to drive, after having had three goes, then, then there are, there's not much in the way of, of consequences. We don't have a pilot, for example, say, actually, um, I, I, I need to keep working to pay my mortgage even though I've just endangered everybody's life. You're out of there. And then everybody takes responsibility for what they do. So one of the factors, and it's not an easy one to solve, is consequences for people who do speed. But changing the infrastructure, changing the road layout is a much more effective way to get that in, in urban areas. Natalie, um, yeah, you you wanted to come in earlier, and I know you wanted to mention mention speed. So and now seems like a good time. We believe that the solution is that every road should have a minimum safety standard, right? Again, safety is our human right, but we do have to be realistic, and we have to spend limited budgets wisely, and we have to recognize that investment in in roads does pay off, though. Um, so that's where targeting high risk roads comes into play. And our partner IRAP, the International Road Assessment Program, um, says that over 50% of fatalities happen on less than 10% of our roads. And the World Health Organization says that improving just 10% of the highest risk roads in every country over 20 years through footpaths and safety barriers and bike lanes and paved shoulders, many of the things we've been discussing today, could prevent a whopping 3.6 million deaths and 40 million serious injuries. But Imagine how much further we could go if, again, every single road had minimum safety standards. And at the crux of all of that is speed management. If I could just add one quick thing on speed. This is why we're, for UN Global Road Safety Week, we are advocating for the call to action to save lives through speed management. The idea is 20 mile an hour or 30 kilometer an hour maximum speeds on all urban roads where vulnerable road users and vehicles mix. And this is emblematic of a global push towards low speeds, these life-saving low speeds. So my ask to anybody listening is if you're a decision maker and you have the power to implement this, this low speed initiative, 
please do that so that we can save lives because we know it works. We've talked about it throughout this, this conversation. And if you're anybody else, go to the UN Global Road Safety Week uh, website and download these materials to ask your decision makers to implement these low speeds. You have to keep in mind that developing countries are still growing and the cities are still being built. So one important thing is that you have regulation for new roads to be built safe. This is very important. We left that. For new roads, you have to have a, a wide sidewalk, a wide bicycle uh, infrastructure that is protected from cars. So this is also important. And lastly, cameras to enforce uh, a speed reduction. Yeah, two very good points. It's been effective here, not least with me. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, Juliet, uh, do come in. Yes, I, I just wanted to add that a lot of the countries that we work in, you, they don't have existing legislation. And even where they do have them, there is always the issue of enforcement, implementation, and then enforcement. Like in Ghana, for instance, we do have an existing law that says you need to keep speeds at as low as 30 kilometers an hour in these areas, and that's 20 miles per hour. And unfortunately, for a very long time, we don't see any of such signs around, no, nothing like 30 kilometer speeds limits. But then when a man started working in Ghana, we started in, installing some of these signs. So just creating the awareness that look, in this area, you need to keep speeds low. And, st and studies have shown that when speeds are as low as 30 kilometers an hour, the chance of survival for a pedestrian who is actually hit is about 90%. But if you go up to about 50 kilometers an hour, the chances of survival for them is under 20%. So clearly, you really need to keep these speeds at as low as that. We've managed to get some countries and city officials to enact um, laws that require speeds to be kept that low. Typical example is in Zambia. And then that, that's become a national legislation. But then also in Namibia and Maputo, we've been able to do them at city level around some schools. James, I wanted to ask something about the manufacturers here, whether they could be doing a little bit more to, to help in this space. The vehicles know what speed I should be doing. They very often f <laughs> flash up um, the, the, the speed in that area. I mean, we are reaching a point, aren't we, where the manufacturers almost could enforce the speed on us, couldn't they? I mean, yeah, I, I think car manufacturers have a critical role to play. In the, in the 60s, the car manufacturers came to a really pivotal conclusion, and that is that they couldn't stop accidents because it was human error. And we know that human error, we are all fallible to it. So what they did is they designed vehicles to crash and to crumple around protecting the, the driver and the occupants. We need a same level of transformative approach to think about vulnerable road users. Because if we think about cars, you know, they're beautifully designed things, but they're a thing of beauty, not necessarily a thing of safety, to think about protecting vulnerable road users. If you think about a vehicle you're going to pick up now, it's got an inbuilt distraction device often in the front of the vehicle. It's got a media system that actually entices you and gets you to think about actually taking your eyes off the road. There are many safety features that, that could be built into cars. And let me give you one simple example. So Volvo in the, in the late 60s came up with a seatbelt. Um, it was a wonderful invention and probably the biggest safety invention that saved millions of lives around the world. 
And what they realised is they, they struck on gold. They had found something really pivotal and they decided to give away the trademark and the IP for that to other manufacturers. And since then, you have an idea of a, uh, a design that has fundamentally saved the occupants of vehicles around the world. What we need is some different thinking about how to protect vulnerable road users where we, we, we fundamentally rethink the problem because I don't think we're there yet. At the risk of, uh, well, it is, but I am being flippant on it and it does sound rather melodramatic, but it's a point that needs making that the safest car in the world would have a steel spike right in the middle of the steering wheel. And we all laugh, but I bet you every one of us here go, yeah, that's true. So what are the consequences of making a car safer when you crash? It's, you know, these are not difficult dots to join. Now, I'm really interested in the development of driverless cars. What happens when you come across a group of cyclists and, uh, and you want to get round them and you're annoyed at having to wait? So you've either got to override the car, but the car isn't going to do it because it's just looked at it and said safe, not safe and it stays there. And what are the consequences of that? So the potential for road safety is really high, but I think it's gonna have a very, very uh, difficult journey to get to that point. If ever it does, I think it'll be superseded by public transport, but if ever it does, because it's gonna take away something, people will feel they've lost something. Um, and I think there's gonna be, be a fight for that control. Yeah, what, what, what do you think about this idea that we could be more controlled? I mean, the, the technology exists now to sort of control our speed from the outside. Uh, do you think that will ever happen? Or do you think, once again, the sort of the, the attack on liberty would be too great? I think it will be. Um, that's how it will be packaged as an attack on liberties. Uh, but, but what it actually is, is it's actually being enabling people to drive. It's giving them convenience. But the cost of that is you take away your liberty to be able to break the law, because that's what uh, an autonomous vehicle will be compelled to do. So I can only see that improving safety. And even when I've looked at the the uh, the potential for error and people are, are flagging up um, circumstances where an autonomous vehicle can make a mistake, even that, if you look at that in the round of how many accidents would it prevent for those freak accidents that do happen, you're still likely to be much better off. Well, to put our discussions into context, here's Etienne Krug. He's director at the Department for Injury Prevention from the World Health Organization. And as we're currently in the UN Road Safety Week, here's what he thinks should be done. And I'm afraid it's not great news for boy or girl racers. If you add up all the deaths on the roads, it's more than 50 million since the creation of the car. This is more deaths than uh, World War One, or it's more deaths than the Spanish flu. And, and this trend has been going upwards for more than a century. And now in the last few years, we're seeing a plateau. So despite the fact that the number of cars and drivers and roads keeps going up, we want to go down. And that's the objective of the next decade is to see a 50% decrease over the next 10 years in the number of deaths. We have developed a transportation system that is very much based on the car. We are giving priority to car-based transportation and we are neglecting healthier and greener and more active modes of transport like cycling and walking and public transport. And, and I think it is time to basically give back the streets to the people. We need to make sure politicians first of all, are aware of how huge this issue is in terms of the consequences on deaths, on injuries, on families, but also the economic cost, which is huge. 
Uh, it has been estimated, depending on the countries, to be between 2 and 5% of GDP. Once we start saving lives and you communicate about life saves, then, you know, this, it's, it's a political win. Now, this week is the United Nations Road Safety Week. It's the sixth time we celebrate UN Road Safety Week. And we have called it the Love 30 campaign, which is, you know, promoting a 30 kilometer per hour speed limit in urban centers where we see a big mix of traffic. And we've seen more and more cities adopt that speed limit in parts of London, New York. Spanish cities this week are starting to do it as well. And this is going to have a huge impact. No debt is justified for our transportation. We should be able to move around in full safety. Right, let's, uh, we're coming to the end of our time. Let me just quickly whip round. I'll give you time to prepare. I'm going to ask you for for one thing that might uh, help the road safety situation in in your country, let's say. So uh, let me start with with James. I think organisations need to be held accountable for road safety issues in terms of uh, just the way they are in terms of, of safety issues inside their facilities and factories. I think if we get that transformative approach then we will get a change. We're not there by a long, long way. Uh, Juliet, what would be one thing you'd like to see uh, where you are that would help safety? I really would love to see the politicians and the lawmakers take the, the decision that needs to be taken to change the narrative about road safety, road crashes in this country and in Ghana and really across Africa. One of the media houses did a documentary highlighting a comparison between the number of people who had actually been killed in road crashes within the first three months of this year, comparing that with the number of people who had died from COVID-19 in the last year. And you had more people dying in three months from road crashes than had died from COVID-19. I'm told that the, the politicians are actually taking this seriously. And there's been talk about doing something different, actually dealing with the situation. So I really would like to see some positive action come out of all the talk. Thank you. Change of mindset from politicians. Oscar. Well, I, I want to talk uh, more about the developing country uh, world, Tom. Uh, you mentioned that uh, motorization rates in, in the developing world are low. So that's a huge opportunity for cities to build infrastructure that is good for public transportation and for biking and for pedestrian. So less those may be the priorities. Chris Baldwin, and, and something I just wanted to give you a chance to mention as well is that at the very start, we mentioned that when you talk about safety, you end up scaring people into their cars, and presumably that's something we need to avoid. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to cheat with my closer, actually, because I'm going to have two things. So on a governmental level, have a street hierarchy and then legislate and build accordingly. And that's why that's why Denmark and Holland, that's why it works there. And, and just, sorry, in very simple terms, explain what a street hierarchy so is and who'd be top the, and bottom. The people walking, people riding bikes, public transport, deliveries... Uh, private motor vehicles and it's happened elsewhere and it works for an individual consequences for causing danger to others and consequences and people will regulate themselves or they'll be off the road let's have a closing thought from you natalie as well during the pandemic we've seen the political will and the funding and the public desire for people to get outside because that is how we avoid getting covid 
And that's how we keep our mental health and our physical health. And if we make it safe, we can make sure that we're also decreasing our road traffic injury and fatality rate. New York City reduced traffic on 67 miles of streets and people loved them. And transportation alternatives had a poll that showed that 63% of New Yorkers supported expanding that. So they recently passed a bill to not only make those streets permanent, but also expand the program. Seattle made 20 miles of streets car free. Paris gave 31 miles of roadway to cyclists and six in 10 users of those pop-up cycle lanes had never even cycled before. So they made those permanent. Let's make these temporary changes permanent and let's put those children at the heart of those changes so that they have a future where they walk and cycle much more than they do today. Well, thank you very much indeed to everybody. I found it fascinating and I hope in the end that these discussions and and the result of people listening to them could be that our streets would become safer for all road users. And a really interesting point, particularly made, I thought, by, by Oscar and Juliet, that while our country is developing, now's the time to get the right infrastructure and the right attitudes in place, the right behaviours in place. And for those of us who are lucky enough to live in more wealthy countries, we do have the legislative power and arguably the money to put this stuff right as well. So thank you very much indeed to Chris Boardman, MBE, Natalie Drazen, Juliet Edu, Oscar Edmundo Diaz and James Pomeroy. And that's it from the Lloyd's Register Foundation podcast. Thanks for listening to the Global Safety Podcast brought to you by Lloyd's Register Foundation. And please subscribe to be sure you don't miss an episode.